Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome to this week's Book Shambles, uh, the second of the episodes uh, we recorded at Royal Albert Hall. Uh, it was actually the third we recorded, but the second we're putting out just to keep up the inconsistency that we began last week. Uh, it'll be Robin and uh, Sarah Kendall guest co-hosting again uh, with guest Dr. Hannah Fry. But before we get to the episode, just a quick reminder that we are going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe in August on the 17th, the 19th, the 20th, the 21st, the 22nd and the 23rd of August. They will be free entry as well as part of the PBH Free Fringe uh, with lots of great special guests there. That will be at Bannerman's at 5.30 on those dates. You can get the details off the Cosmic Shambles website. And we've got some more live events at various festivals up and down the country to announce very soon. So make sure you're following us at Cosmic Shambles on Twitter and we will announce those there. And thank you to everyone that came along to our shows at Latitude Festival last weekend. We recorded lots of interviews as well with different people for our Festival Shambles podcasts that will be out soon. We recorded some of our live panels as well. We'll be putting those out. And if you're a Patreon supporter at the behind-the-scenes uh, reward level, we've put up the the now traditional video of going secondhand book shopping on Jeff Townsend's Dylan's mobile book bus. So you'll be able to find that on your Patreon page, patreon.com slash bookshambles. And if you'd like to watch that, you can become a Patreon supporter if you're not already uh, at that site as well. As little as $1 an episode. And you'll have access to extended episodes and all sorts of stuff on there. And we only ever charge you for three episodes a month, regardless of how many we put out. Now, on to this week's episode. Hello. We start with mathematics. Have we got any mathematicians in? Oh, that's good. You don't have to be very accurate <laughs> at all. Uh, so this is, uh, if you don't listen to we, the podcast Book Shamble, so I will start off with uh, a brief preamble just for the recording itself. Uh, and I will merely say, hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Josie uh, is not here because she's had a baby, so instead, uh, it would be good if I said, we've got her baby to do it. Because uh, uh, instead we have a brilliant storyteller, and if you've not heard the show, I, I don't know if it's still, you can still hear it on iPlayer, uh, the Australian Trilogy, which was on Radio and has won about three awards now, Sarah, hasn't it? It's had... Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, um, uh, yes, it's exactly three. We've won exactly three. That's... But one of them was a silver. Does that count? You get uh, a you've, silver? you've won two awards and that's fantastic. Oh. And the, um, but it's an amazing piece of work. And uh, so Thanks, Sarah Robin. is, uh, is sitting as well. And we're joined by Dr. Hannah Fry, uh, where we've all just come back from the Cheltenham Science Festival. I um, haven't, but you guys have. All the yeah. important people. Oh. <laughs> and it's a lovely thing, the chat, because um, Hannah was saying, I was saying that you, you, you came back on Sunday slightly damaged from the Saturday night. And there's this great thing that happens years ago because the Cheltenham Festivals, there's kind of a jazz one, a classical one, and, uh, and a literary one. And they never used to give 
the cheaper room rate uh, to science. They went, well, we can't give a cheaper room rate to the science festival because scientists don't drink like jazz musicians. <laughs> and then year two, they went, you can have the cheaper room rate. <laughs> I never knew hearing pissed-up theoretical physicists leading up to strange theories is a wonderful thing. Um, so we'll start... Well, actually, can we start off with what we were just talking about before we came up here? Yeah. Um, because your book is a Penguin book. And uh, I was interested in seeing Penguin have got uh, a policy that they're going to try in terms of encouraging a more uh, diverse catalogue, which I personally think is a good idea. Um, but I've noticed that some people on social media and some spectator keen, journalists... Less so, yeah, keen people. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so some rich... Uh, middle-class uh, white men who merely got there through their own resolve and brilliance uh, <laughs> with all of the other rich white middle-class men. Um, so well, how do you... I'm interested in your reaction to, to that. I mean, let's be honest, I don't think anyone is going to get upset when they get a book deal, like regardless of the situation that, that arose to get them there. But I also sort of think... I mean, this is something that comes up quite a lot, right? So the BBC also, um, earlier this year, said that they were going to get 50% of their panellists um, on all programmes were going uh, to be female. Um, and there was this furore on Twitter where people were saying, if, if the BBC call me and ask me to be on their panel, I'll, I'm offended by this because I want to know that I'm there on merit and not, because of, uh, and, and not just because you know, I'm ticking some quota box. And I kind of understand that perspective to, to a degree. But I also sort of think... So I have my own uh, radio show, Radio 4, where we, we invite on expert um, guests to talk about their work. And I sort of think if you can find an expert man, then you can find an expert woman. You just have to fight a little bit harder sometimes to, to, to find them. You have to go out and find them. And I sort of think the same of, of, of authors of books. I think if you can find a really wonderfully written book by uh, you know, a male author, there is a wonderfully written book by a female author or any other category of person out there they just might not be at your front doorstep because their, you know, their friend isn't friends with your friend. I think sometimes, you know, people have to be forced to go outside their own networks to find brilliant work. Because really, what's the probability that that only, you know, all the best authors in the world uh, look like one particular category of person? So it's kind of a, it ends up again being like Francis Galton's hereditary genius, where who was Francis Galton? I think was a cousin of Charles Darwin, as far yeah, as I remember. Right, yeah. And that bit going, it's really interesting. But people who have a lot of spare time um, and live in really big houses <laughs> and have their own personal <laughs> microscopes are often very clever. Um, but people who are stuck in chimneys, they're rubbish. They're just there going, "Can you get me out of this chimney?" Very stupid people. They know nothing about yeah. calculus, and I won't get them out of the chimney till Christmas. <laughs> the, um, so, um, Sarah, I wonder if you wanted. Because uh, I think that I, I have to admit, the BBC policy. I thought the, the stupid thing about that was, don't announce it, do it. That's exactly, yeah. uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Because I, you know, my personal experience of exactly that was uh, up until maybe two years ago. Uh, pretty much every single comedy panel show, there were just no women. It was, and it was absolutely fine. Nobody had a problem with it. And if they did have a woman, it would be a journalist, it wouldn't be a comedian, or it would be a singer, or it would be a presenter. So you'd have uh, five funny men, five professional comedians, and then a woman who sat there and just giggled a lot. And if she did speak, she would be teeing up a joke. You know, she would give an important piece of information, and then hilarious man would come in and completely upend it. And then they made this announcement, you know, oh, we, you have to have, you have to have women on the program. And you're kind of like, why don't you just, as you say, 
just do it. No one's going to notice. No one's going to care. But now this instantly makes it look like, oh, did you get that job because they had to employ you? Is that why? Because they had to? And you just... It's such a, a grubby way to... Um, Correct and you know there needs to be a correction and when there is a correction like that there are there are ways to do it and that to, to me was the most idiotic way to bring about a necessary correction. Well, we'll uh, we'll go on to maths now because you have a new book which is not not quite out yet. But I, I want to start on the bus here. I was reading this book by Jim Holt when Einstein walked with Girdle, and uh, I've also just been reading a fantastic book. I don't know if you've read it, How the Universe Got Its Spots by Jana Levin. Oh, I haven't read it. I've, right. I, she's a great writer. If you've if you've not, she, her most recent book, Black Hole Blues, is about the search for gravitational waves, and she has this wonderful way of. She's both a, a, a working scientist, but also has this a tremendous ability with with, with poetry as well. Uh, and I was just... Because in that book, she starts off by saying mathematicians like Cantor, that they go insane. And she wondered as a physicist, is it sometimes when she has an idea in her head that she can't share with anyone else unless they too were a practising physicist and you start to feel quite trapped. And, and here uh, in this book where they're just describing Gödel, uh, Gödel who... It is Gödel, isn't it? Gödel, yeah. It is Gödel, that's good. Uh, um, the, uh, uh, Gödel, who has often been called the greatest logician uh, since Aristotle, was a strange and ultimately tragic man, whereas Einstein was gregarious. And then he explains that uh, Gödel uh, subsisted on a valetudinarian is that valetudinarian don't look at me a valetudinarian <laughs> diet of butter baby food and laxatives he believed <laughs> he believed in ghosts he had a morbid dread of being poisoned by refrigerator gases he refused to go out when certain distinguished mathematicians were in town apparently out of concern that they might try to kill him Every chaos is a wrong appearance, he insisted, the paranoic's first axiom. Now, wow. that, I think, is very much the traditional mathematician. Um, so can you just so, go back over here? What was his diet again? Baby food, uh, butter. Butter, baby food and laxatives. That's so dark. Yeah. That is just the grimmest description of it. Which one is the treat? I just don't If you're don't, looking I, at it, which one are you like going, oh, oh save the laxatives till last? Oh, good God. Oh, that's fantastic. Perhaps laxatives just become a complete necessity after the... the also, I don't think you'd need laxatives if you were eating baby food. Like, that's, <laughs> I'm sorry to get bogged down in this, but I reckon if you were eating baby food, you'd have no problem in that. Like, I think that's, that's an excessive use of... of you. Oh, OK, we can move on. Well, I'm there is the possibility that matter. this is the diet that Josie is having to do at the moment. <laughs> ha having just given birth, it could possibly just be butter. But, yeah, it's that incredible moment that, uh, I mean, you, you, we all, all have, have children, and, and you, Hannah, I think your child's still quite young, that, that bit where you never imagined that the only warm food you would have when your child is first born is something that's fallen out of its mouth. <laughs> everything, everything else is cold that you eat because you've had to scamper off, and then you go, oh, that will still be warm from the child's saliva. Yum, 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 yum. <laughs> um, but, yeah, going back to the... the Because I was thinking also about that, that The Man Who Loved Numbers, the book about Paul Erdish Remini as well. Yeah. Um, those the, mathematicians are... And we want to have this about... It appears to be an area of study which can, more than most others, lead to the madhouse. Well, 
I don't know whether it leads to the madhouse or it, it's just, I mean, ultimately, you're, you're right in one sense in that, especially the very purest of mathematics, it's kind of an individual pursuit, you know. You're not, it's not like a team sport, really, quite often. Um, so you do have to spend long hours kind of locked away inside your own head. And I don't know whether that's the thing that, that um, well, actually, I, don't, I think I dispute that, that we have more sort of, you know, people of that uh, description than, than other subjects. I think there's, you know, there's, there's the odd... Oh, come on, I've mentioned three. Surely that's enough, isn't it? <laughs> How many do you have to have, then? <laughs> three data points, that's yeah, it. Yeah. That's, that's all you need. But is that a... St is that, is that a st like, is that the stereotype? Is yeah, that, totally. Yeah. Right. totally. Like, I mean, there's many, there's many more examples right. um, where, where those came from. Um, that, I do think that is how people imagine right. mathematicians. People do it with comedians. They go, I hear comedians are actually, like, a lot of them are depressives. <laughs> and you're like, no, we're just people who... All, we just probably have exactly the same statistical numbers, but it sort of stands out a bit more because we're comedians. But when you say mathematician, like mad mathematician, I go, oh, yeah, like beautiful mind. Like, <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. Like, you've already got yeah, that sort of cinema no, tradition. But actually, to be honest, I think it's the same thing, actually. The vast majority of mathematicians are just totally normal people who really like maths. Yeah. I mean, I do think that it does attract the type of person who, who is quite happy to sit in a room on their own and, like, think in their own head for a while. So perhaps there's sort of like a, a you know, a tendency towards, um, you know, people who, who enjoy that. But generally speaking, I mean, if you go to a maths department, it is just normal people see that is the same as comedians so the only difference because comedians like only spending time on their own just writing and then they will come out as long as they're the only one talking and everyone's looking at them <laughs> and then they'll go back in again so there's a similar kind of but yeah i, I, I mean who was were there certain because i did find that that book the man who, who loved numbers paul hoffman i think is mm. over there that that was a fascinating insight because Airdish is a very interesting character i don't know how many i mean could you explain a little bit about the, you know the way that he did mathematics yeah so actually when i said that mathematics wasn't collaborative um Erdős is, is, is the counter example so this man was an unbelievably uh, prolific uh, in terms of how, how many papers he wrote in his lifetime but he would collaborate with just everyone so i can't remember the number of collaborations but it's definitely in the hundreds um, and essentially, what that meant was that um, he uh, he also did a lot of work on networks, right? A lot of his a lot of his work was on you know looking at how things are connected to each other. Um, but what that meant was that by the time his career, you know, the, the the sort of twilight of his career, the number of people he'd collaborated with and the people that they'd collaborated collaborated with had like created this enormous like network of people. So um, you might have heard of the the Bacon number, which is this idea that um, how many people. Uh, how many steps removed you are away from Kevin oh, Bacon? Yeah, six degrees. Know. Yeah, six exactly, degrees of Bacon. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. So essentially the idea comes from this, this um, Erdos number. Yeah. So uh, all mathematicians have an Erdos number, which is how many steps away you are from publishing a paper with, with Erdos. Wow. Mine's what's three. your... Three. That's good. I wow. think it's three. Maybe it's four. I might be lying. And what's... Uh, <laughs> In terms of collaborate, like, what would be the big selling point for him to collaborate? Like, what, what, what's the reason? Like, what would he, why? So I think, um, I mean, there's a few reasons, really. I think that he was just um, massively interested in loads of different areas of mathematics. So some people really specialise, um, and he wasn't, you know, he was, he was hugely interested in lots of different things. Mm. But I think also he came along at a point where mathematics was making like this really big push forward, particularly in his area of, of, of um, you know, graphs and networks. Um, so uh, when it's a new area, no one really knows what to do, right? So you, you end up collaborating with lots of different people. Right. 
But maybe he was just collecting mathematicians. That's what I was wondering. Like, why, why, would, why do you, when you collaborate, why, what's your reason for collaborating? It's just fun. And yeah, I think, exactly. I think that's what you get. There's, I think in the book they kind of explain that he would, he would just turn up and knock on someone's door. And I think the phrase was, is, is your mind open or something like that? And the person oh, That sounds go, dirty. Oh, all right, then. Hi, I've got some baby food and butter. Yes. <laughs> no, that's good. That's a totally different thing. Sorry. Yeah. We were, now, your new book, which I haven't read yet because you gave it to me 15 minutes ago, and I, I'm fine. <laughs> but I'm not that um, this, which has a lovely cover by the way there's a beautiful thing which I'm always interested in social media where very often we focus on the negativity of social media but very often also there's wonderful things that happen and uh, when Hannah had you had three or four different three different cover three different cover designs with different colours I love that by and the way and once that got retweeted as to which one people felt was best it's the busiest my timeline has ever been what the, at one point there were 100 people in an hour who had opinions on the color of this opinions too, yeah right I know. But that, I think Twitter flushes out that side of people. Yeah. Like a strong opinion on something <laughs> inconsequential. That's Twitter, you know. <laughs> Which is great when you need to decide yeah. something like a book cover. <laughs> yeah. like, I'd just been staring at them so long. I'd been like, I just went slightly colorblind um, and was just like, you know what? Let's let democracy decide. It's fantastic. It's really great. So it is about how to be human in the age of machine, and I presume that may well be part of it. What What was your the previous books? Your Your, your TED lecture was was turned into book, the mathematics of love. You did one also about Christmas as well, didn't you? I like the serious, weighty topics. Yeah, love yeah. And the, uh, <laughs> um, but but the mathematics of love is a very that was a very interesting talk, and it works as a as a, a, a book as well. I yeah, I, that was to be honest. That was uh, it was a few years ago, and it was sort of a private joke that just got terribly out of hand. Um, so I was asked to go and do this talk, this TEDx talk, um, and uh, if I'd known how many people were going to end up watching it, I would have tried a lot harder, um, to be honest. Um, but then they were like, "Can we turn it into a book?" Um, so I had six weeks to sort of get it all down. So it's not like serious, weighty academic literature. Um, that book, it's more, it's quite you know, light-hearted. Um, but the thing is, is that explaining that to people that uh, I was just sort of, it was very tongue in cheek. Mainly, I just wanted to prove that you can apply math to anything, really. Um, but I have had people call up my academic office asking me for dating advice, wow. like during the day, during the working day. Yeah. I mean, genuinely, this, this one woman just wouldn't let me go. She was like, but, you know, I've met people um, along the way and, you know, they don't really understand me. It's like I've actually got to get on with stuff. <laughs> 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 well, this TEDx talk has gone to your head. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this book instead, this is a much more serious book. So um, this is much closer to my academic research. And it's about how, um, how these sort of mathematical algorithms and data as well, especially, they're just deciding everything about our future. And I don't think we really realise that that's what's happening. Um, and I don't think that we're having the right conversations about... Um, what we're comfortable with. Cambridge Analytica is the, the perfect example of this, right? Like, all that data is being collected, we're, people, our personalities are being analysed, and uh, that analysis is then being used against us to manipulate us. Um, but that's not just, it's not just in advertising, you're seeing these kind of in courtrooms, in hospitals, you know, um, all across the board, in police stations, in our cars as well, all of these different kind of analytical decisions about our future and predictions about who we are as people. Because that's very. Because there's a book called Is it um, Everybody Lies? Yeah, uh, great which is book. really interesting book. Which is a guy who has uh, basically used predominantly 
Google searches because he says that's that when, when people actually have to fill in a personality test, they're probably still going, oh yeah, I think I'm that. Whereas when they're actually going, it's two in the morning and no one's here and I can look up whatever I want, then you get there's a fantastic revelations. That, that, what's it in 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 India? The uh, my husband wants me to. Um, the lead search that continues that is my husband wants me to breastfeed him and so one of the chapters is about all of the different areas and the different the different sexual peccadilloes that are known around the world the the, the biggest um i'm worried that my husband uh in in america is i'm worried that my husband is gay that's the the, the number one kind of way so it, it's a very interesting way where he pieces together things like the statistics on how many people also things like in terms of searching how many people probably um are gay because uh, it used to be 10, 10% was, I think that's based on, um, what's his name? The, uh, yeah, Kinsey, thank you. Uh, Kinsey report, and actually that's, it appears that, that that was an overestimation. I was about to say Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. Yeah. <laughs> if Liam Neeson played Kinsey with that level of threat that he has in all the other films, you will tell me you're gay or I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to kill you. Do you know what, Alfred? I really don't think you're giving me a chance with this one. Um, but this, but that is that part of what you're. So you're looking in in, in this book. Can you give me an example? Because I, I think people are now since Cambridge Analytica, and I think also even when people just notice, why am I being recommended that I'm meant to have this, and am I ever being led to music that I might really like, or am I just being told this should be for you? What's a good concrete example of something where we can start to, you know, sceptically analyse how we're being manipulated? Yeah. So that book, everybody lies. There's another one called uh, Dataclism by uh, Christian Rudder, which is uh, who we who we are when we think. No one's looking. Those are the books which really sort of take the data that we're leaving around and uh, and look at ourselves at it. So it's, it's holding up a mirror, really. But I think where I'm trying to go with this book is to say where that uh, analysis then goes, right? So what we then know about you. So to give you an example, there's um, one uh, company in the UK who has access to your um, your loyalty uh, card when you shop in a supermarket, right? So they know everything that you buy. Um, and they can analyze all of that, right? Um, this company sells home insurance. And they realized um, after doing loads of analysis and kind of linking up the people who are making claims on the home insurance with what they were buying um, in, in, in their sort of shopping, um, that some people were less likely to claim than others, right? And there's a few different factors, but one of the factors came out was that people who are home cooks and who are buying sort of, you know, home cooking ingredients are a lot less likely to claim on their home insurance, right? And that sort of makes sense, right? If you're the kind of person who spends a whole day preparing a meal, or a dinner party, you're not going to let your kids play football in the house, right? Um, but uh, the thing is, how do you tell that someone's a home cook? So they looked at all the different ingredients, and there was one that stood out, which is that if you buy fresh fennel, right? <laughs> you are less likely to claim on your home insurance. So they oh kind of feel all of this in. Now, I'm not saying it's like a one-to-one, -one, right? Like, you can't just go shopping now and buy <laughs> fresh fennel and that's it, right? You can't just do that. Um, but it, this is the kind of stuff that's happening behind the scenes. Now, when it comes to shopping, it's sort of, you know, uh, I'm being manipulated into buying this or I'm getting a cheaper home insurance deal or whatever. It's not, it's not the end of the world. But there are other examples, and I think probably the most um, telling is uh, something that's been happening in Chicago. It's called the Chicago Strategic Subject List. And essentially what they do is they analyze the network of friendships that happened or, or co connections between uh, hundreds uh, or sorry, tens of thousands of people within the city, maybe even hundreds of thousands actually, 
Um, and they try and make a prediction based on all of that as to who is next likely to be involved in a gun crime. Now, they don't distinguish between victim or perpetrator. They just try and make that prediction. And the idea is that if you are, um, if you are connected to people who've been involved in gun crime, you are likely to be involved. But also, sort of today's, uh, today's perpetrator or today's victim is tomorrow's perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So these kind of gang ways. And so far, that's sort of okay. So they... Um, they publish a, 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 or they give the police a list of, it's called the hot list, right, of names of people who kind of come up on that predictive score as really likely to be involved in gun crime in the future. And initially the idea behind this was that you would send a social worker to these, these people's house and say, look, you need to get out of this life. Um, we have this prediction for your future and it's, you know, it's worrying and so on um, and that kind of stuff. And that, I think, you know, that's a, it's a decent, decent aim. But um, there was just recently an analysis. This, this list has been running for a little while, and there was an analysis on, on the effect that the list actually had. And for starters, the people whose names appeared on this list that was given to police were no more likely to be involved in gun crime than other people, but they were far more likely to have been arrested. So essentially, it looks like what was happening was that the police were taking this list because it comes from a computer, you know, a computer printout, so it must be accurate. And then they were essentially um, treating it as like a list of suspects. So whenever there was a shooting, they'd go straight to that list, start at the top and work their way down. And there are all kinds of examples like this, I think, where, um, you know, data and these kind of um, computer processes are being used in an irresponsible way that are fundamentally changing society that um, I think are really kind of behind the scenes at the moment. That, I mean, but that story sounded sort of quite caring and, and uh, yeah, the, imp initially, the yeah. impulse. Yeah, totally. And that's the thing, right? Like, no one, you know, there's not, um, it's not very often that you have these evil-minded people who are like, you know, deliberately thinking up these schemes, although there are some, right? There are some. Um, but it's not often that that happens. You often have very well-intentioned scientists, um, you know, data scientists and statisticians, very well-intentioned government officials implementing this stuff, and you have like a, a runaway, you know, result that no one can quite keep control of. Mm. Um, to give you one, one other example of that, like well-intentioned, but just people are, you know, a bit... I mean, they make mistakes. Um, in Idaho, there's this other algorithm um, that was like uh, that was sold to the um, to the State Department, and the idea behind it was that it would calculate how much uh, state benefit you got if you were disabled, if you were a resident of, of Idaho, right? Um, and these are people who really, um, you know, need a lot of care, but they don't want to go into an institution, so they're getting care in their own homes. Um, anyway, so the state got this new piece of uh, software that was going to calculate how much everyone got. And then, um, essentially, people found out that, like, some people were getting way more and some people were getting way less. And it just didn't make any sense. So um, all of the kind of people clubbed together and went to the State Department and were like, can you tell us what's going on behind this algorithm? Why have I suddenly got $20,000 less a year? Um, and, you know, they, the, the, the State Department refused to, to explain it because it was from a computer, right? It's mm. from an algorithm, so therefore it must be right. Anyway, they got a class action lawsuit together, and it turns out it wasn't like some artificial intelligence. It wasn't some sort of very clever thing that they were using. It was an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> that was so riddled with mistakes and errors that a judge ruled it, that it ruled that it was basically choosing how much people got um, almost entirely at random. It's totally arbitrary, the, wow. the decision that it was dishing out to people. But when you've got this sort of 
um, you know, this, this you can't argue with a computer, right? And I think um, however well-intentioned they are in the first place, mm. you've got to sort of question whether you really want these things having that kind of authority. When did you become... W w do you remember the first point you were aware of this as something that was going on uh, to us, the, 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 the rapid rise of the use of machines and, and the, the use of, of data? Yeah, so back in... Um, when I started my postdoc... Um, when I first got into this area of looking at sort of... Um, so I, st I study patterns in human behaviour, really. So I use a lot of big data, um, and, I, and I make these algorithms um, myself. And back in 2011, I was working with the police. Um, it was just after the, we'd had the riots in London. And I was working with the police um, on analysing what had happened and coming up with sort of a mathematical description of it that in theory, I mean, it was all proof of concept and pretty rubbish, if I'm honest. Um, but uh, the idea was that police could then test out different scenarios so that if it was ever to happen again, they would they'd be better prepared for it. And after we sort of finished that project, I didn't work anymore in riot stuff. You know, I le kind of left it um, to one side and went off to go and work on other things. And then about 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, I was at a conference in America um, where I was, uh, you know, on a, a police collaboration conference I again, right? And there were all kind of different groups there. And there was one group there who were working on riot stuff, right? They'd taken our work and they'd extended it. And now, essentially, whereas what we'd done before was just looking at how people were moving around in the city, now what they were doing was monitoring Twitter, looking for clues as to who was inciting riots before they'd ever actually been... Uh, started and it didn't quite work I mean it doesn't totally work you can't put it into practice yet but you can see sort of where this line is going right incrementally people are sort of adding to the knowledge of before with the ambition that you can you can monitor Twitter decide that person's the the key to starting this riot we're going to go in we're going to take them out mm -hmm. and then stop any of this stuff happening in the first place and my problem with that is that these algorithms make mistakes, right? These are not perfect machines. And, you know, with that Idaho example, right? Like, a lot of the time, the, the maths behind it is kind of junk maths. Um, and I just thought that's actually a really worrying trend. But it's like you said earlier, right? Who's... who's uh, everyone along the way has got good intentions mm. there, and it's something that kind of takes on a life of its own. But is it also a thing that becomes... Um like people start to hold on to it as, well, this must be the way we're going to do this. Like this thing, because it's numbers and it's true, and it almost becomes like a cult. Like, I mean, last week when we were talking about Ayn Rand and, and, and Atlas Shrugged, and there was a group of people who, you know, Greenspan, and they thought, that's the answer. Is this the new kind of, this is the answer? Yeah, we, we can find it all in maths and statistics and profiling, and there's like a false belief that, ah, oh, well, that's how we're going to, this is how we're going to figure it out now, and it's, it's incredibly... Lord, by the sound yeah, of I think so. I think so. Do you, Roman? Do you think people like take, you know, computer, think maths is like giving giving you the answer rather than just an answer? I think we're in a really odd place because I think in one side we have people who uh, their their lives are run by machines, many of which have been created by experts and algorithms have been created by experts, but at the same time, as they embrace the experts and the algorithms and the machines, they also decide that the Earth is flat and that no one landed <laughs> on the moon and that vaccination is... And there's a very... I think that it feels at the moment like there's a very strange split personality between 
being this, you know, the surge of information. And this might just be because I'm a middle-aged human being and it might be my generation who I think become rapidly confused by the amount of information, whereas my 10-year-old son, I think, is, you know, every day he tells me about some new meme that's fun and, you know, all of that stuff. And, and it's very interesting <laughs> to have, have, you know, nine-year-olds talk about memes, which I think, you know, when Susan Blackmore 20 years ago wrote The Meme Machine, you know, that it, it seems... Incredible. But so I think there's this odd thing where in one way you go... I think it's, is it, sorry, I'm asking a very rambling thing, but that bit where the checklist manifesto mm. thing, which has been much debated about if you have a checklist and you have to tick everything off, do you do it better or do you make you do all the checklists, but it means you don't check the extra things because I've done the checklist. So if anyone asks me after this thing's blown up, I go, it's not my fault it blew up, I did the checklist. And I think that you see it in a lot of professions now. You see it on trains. You see the decisions made by train guards. The old guys who normally have a union badge who've been there for, like, you know, 50 years, they, if some old woman's got the wrong ticket, they go, oh, she's probably made a mistake. Mm. And some of the younger ones go, well, I'm sorry, it's still £200. And you go, it, you know, that, that moment ago, but we've got the list. This is what we have to do. So I don't know if that... Mm. No, I think, you're, I think that's exactly what it is, right? It's like it's a different type of authority, a sort of non-human authority that you're putting in the hands of sort of, you know, everyday people. I think that... Um, but I just think we're seeing this more and more. So, you know, um, judges in America who are elected, right... Um, you, you, th this algorithm is used in the UK as well, but not quite to the same extent. Um, but judges uh, in America are given an algorithm that will predict whether or not a criminal will go on to commit another crime. Mm. And they can base their sentencing on that. Um, and the thing is, is that if you're elected, right, um, you don't want to make mistakes. You don't want to uh, be held accountable for that. So if someone comes along with a thing that is essentially like a little, uh, you know, here's the answer, mm. um, you can just say, well, I just followed the machine. It's a way to absolve yourself of responsibility in exactly the same way as the checklist. And I think, well, I think that's it. I think all these things are kind of slowly trickling down to every possible aspect. But that's, the machine thing is interesting as well when we talk about, because I was thinking that, today with on, on a train where in one way we have a trust machine but in another way train toilets are a great example <laughs> because people don't trust what they've had to add the door is locked are you sure yes it is you it must be locked because that's why the virgin thing's now saying hello i'm a funny toilet that will never be <laughs> annoying you know and those and and so some of the train lines have added so an actual, there's a, a lever that you pull, which I'm sure is entirely unnecessary, but it's so you go, I must have locked it because I didn't just press a button. I pulled the lever and it went click. So we still, with machines, we want to feel there's a hand crank involved. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so what you're talking about is something called, uh, in terms of like the computer side, it's called algorithm aversion. And there's loads of studies of this. Um, it, it, we have this like strange relationship with machines because on the one hand, we, we often over-trust them. So a really great example of this is, you know, people who follow literally their GPS over a cliff. Um, or there was, there was actually there were some <laughs> Japanese tourists who were um, visiting Australia once and they wanted to go and visit like an island off the coast. I think it's like... It never ends well. Whenever, <laughs> oh God, what happened? Are there little islands off the coast of Brisbane? Yeah. Let's go with that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, uh, so they put it in their sat-nav, off they went and then, you know, the sort of road turned into beach and they carried on driving and then beach turned into water and they carried on driving. And they didn't realise that like the sat-nav was just saying it's in that direction they actually drove into the sea wow um, they had to be rescued by some uh, some Aussies on a boat um, <laughs> but you know that's and they would have been so rude <laughs> <laughs> 
But I do think you see that quite often, that you have people who like just blindly have faith in the machine. And then on the other hand, as soon as you know that a machine can make a mistake, like, you know, Siri, for example, we've all called it an idiot, you know, it, like sort of forgetting about <laughs> the incredible technical accomplishment it takes to get it in your hands. That was the first thing I did to Siri. And call it an idiot. I told it to fuck itself. <laughs> I just wanted to see what had happened. What was its response? Hey, let's keep it clean. Yeah. <laughs> I was all right, fair play. All right. Now I'll get on and ask you how to make a salmon miso soup. <laughs> Sorry. I've never used it. Oh. I'm nearly 50 and I don't think I should. <laughs> I do. I think there's things which are not for me. I, I think conversations with, with machines... I had a game and watch, right? The game I had as a child was getting a guy bouncing over... Five turtles, and you had to see when the fish were coming up and make sure that the turtle didn't go down and you drowned. <laughs> Two hours, just going back and forth across <laughs> the bridge, right? That's all. So anything now where I'm actually talking to something of that size and believing that that should be my guru, I don't like that idea. Also with the thing with technology and trusting the technology, because I, I got really into um, air crash investigation mm. when I was... Uh, up in the middle with my second child. I was up sort of breastfeeding in the middle of the night. I got addicted to air crash investigation. And there was a particular crash. Air France. Yes! Yeah, it's in the book. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, what page? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It's a perfect example. You tell it, though, because you see... Is the it the <laughs> A320 and it was the air show? Oh, I oh, no, oh, no, that's oh. a different one. But no, say that one as well. That one's good. Yeah, okay. Go on. All right. So the A320 was uh, the, like the most computerised of its time. Uh, so it was the one where you barely had to touch the console. It would take off and land and cruise control and, you know. Uh, and they were... <laughs> the, the, this was the last time they ever did this, but they did a flyby at an air show with passengers on board. And uh, essentially they were meant to come in, fly low and then go back up again so, the, so that all the people could marvel at the A320, this brand new aeroplane. And uh, so they brought it in, they were on descent and then when the pilot went to bring the nose of the plane back up, the plane just went, nah, we're now on, we're on finals, we're finals to land. Didn't say that, but that's what the computer was thinking. <laughs> this is me retelling a highly technical story. I'm getting nervous. You want anyway. to land, Dave. Dave, <laughs> you want to land the plane. No, but in a French Urgy. accent. Do it in a French accent. Daisy, oh, you want to land. Daisy. I cannot do that. Uh, so the plane, and but also as with the, with air crash investigation, there's always like a trilogy of things that have gone wrong. But they changed air strips at the last minute, and there was a forest at the end of it. So the plane's coming in to land. The pilot's trying to bring the nose of the aeroplane back up. He's got a plane full of people on board and the aeroplane overrides him and nose dives straight into the forest. Uh, people are killed. And it went to tribunal and he kept on saying, I tried to override the computer. It wouldn't let me because they wanted it to be the pilot's fault. And he was going, I swear, I did everything I could but the computer wouldn't let me. But he me. survived. He did. Yes, and uh, he cleared his name after it took him years where they actually accepted, actually, we've got a real problem here because the computers are not letting humans override. What's your Air France one? What's oh, your... so this one, so this is like another aspect of sort of our relationship with machines, which is that if you, um, so is that I think it is, uh, it was an Airbus again, I think it was an A320 again, right. um, but I might have that wrong, um, but uh, essentially an incredibly sophisticated aircraft which can pretty much do everything itself. Um, and it was flying from Brazil to Paris. 
and it had three pilots on board, and one of them was um, in his 30s, was a very relatively junior pilot, um, and, and he'd racked up a, you know, a, a decent number of hours flying, but he'd barely ever actually flown the plane because mm. these planes are so automated. Um, and what happened was they went through a storm and um, you have a, a wind speed uh, monitor on the outside of the aircraft and it got um, clogged with ice crystals. So it cut off the, um, the autopilot in, inside the cockpit. Uh, and uh, there was nothing wrong with the aircraft. Everything was completely fine. But because he'd never flown a plane before and he was kind of in a bit of turbulence, he massively overreacted and pulled the nose right up. So they climbed really high to the sky to the point where um, essentially they, it's called an aerodynamic stall. It's where the wings yeah. don't work like wings anymore. There's they, not enough like air wind drift breakers. over yeah, the exactly. Right so essentially they went so high up and then just fell out of the sky. Um, but the captain was back in the cockpit, the other pilot was there, and no one, nothing wrong with the plane, they easily could have saved it, but because all three of them had such little experience, because they'd handed over so much control to the machine, they only realised what the, the reason why they were falling from the sky until it was too late to save the aircraft. Oh. It was very tragic, everyone died, it was really awful. Oh. But um, but since then they have you know they, they started to um, install all these kind of systems which uh, you know they they make sure that pilots turn off autopilot regularly and kind of keep up their skills and that new people who start fl uh, you know flying these incredibly sophisticated planes have manual practice. Yeah. But this really is a problem if we have driverless cars. Yeah. You know you're going to have the same sort of thing on the roads. Right. See, I don't understand the idea of driverless because I, I think anything that if if we keep removing the whole problem of being human is finding some sense of purpose so and you, you know what i mean so if you keep removing all the sense of, of purpose and you just end up you're just sitting in the back of a thing waiting to go to a lay-by for a picnic <laughs> and then the robot thermos just spits soup in your mouth or whatever it's um this appears to Sounds be like a utopia yeah this is uh, these are the, pic the, the, the picnics I'm, but that seems to be part of the issue as well which is there is a point of mechanization i mean i'm interested with you know the, the the cars i don't really understand i i, I mean I, I do think it's intriguing that the recently has been i think the first accident the first fatality mm. involving one of those cars and of course the moment that happens then everything get, we must you know get rid of that for the time being it's all going to be taken off the road but of course every single day people die in car accidents, mm. uh, but we don't go. Do you know what the humans have got to stop driving cars? But don't we you have that? How do we? Sorry, go on. Well, don't you either have to have no driverless cars or entirely driverless cars? Like, isn't the problem if you've got driverless cars and unpredictable humans at the same time? So you can have a driverless car, but the person in front of you might suddenly sneeze and drive like. Every, they all have to be computerised. You can't have half and half. Yeah, I do think that half and half is going to be really tricky. Because yeah. the thing is as well, right, if you, if you um, design these cars, you've got to make sure they never crash, right? right? So that means that if you step out in front of one, it can't crash into you. So people are just going to bully these cars. If you go half and half, people are just going to bully them. Mm. Um, but that death, that, that was somebody who wasn't... Uh, it was a, a bystander. There have mm. been deaths in, in these vehicles before, but this was kind of a completely innocent bystander. And I think that, for me, I think the issue really is pretending these cars are driverless at the moment when they're not driverless at the moment. They require your full attention at all times. And I think when we're using the words driverless, it creates an illusion of safety in people's minds. So all of the deaths really, uh, or at least, uh, let me rephrase that, the deaths so far, the, the highly publicised deaths so far, have been because people have not been paying attention when they should have been monitoring the cars. <laughs> I have to quickly ask you, have you seen the uh, airline crash, the DC-10 into Sioux City? 
<laughs> I was going to try gonna, and end this we'll up. We'll pick this up afterwards because I am also slightly obsessed. Are you with into it? Oh, yeah. I am so. I... It's the Aeroflot one, man. The Aeroflot one. The <gasps> oh worst. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that one. Recording. I know. Oh, my God. I'm so excited to meet a fellow enthusiast. <laughs> I went mental for the DC-10 into Sioux City. It was the most exciting fucking... Oh, shit. This is really now... some. If this is like J.G. Ballard's airplane, this is kind of... There's, there's something quite... Did so, you get obsessed with that? Can I just about... check? No, but, like, there were fatalities, weren't there, in yeah. all of these stories, Yeah, right? but just shut up. No, so, no, now, just... But, did you, with the, but did you find yourself... Gaming it in your head, right? If that happens to me, what I'm gonna do? Like, I kept on trying to like gather information. I was trying to gather data as to, oh, so that's how that person survived that. So, all right, I should remember that if that happens to me, there are statistics on where you are most likely to survive. Uh, five seats, five hello, seats from the exit, yes, and hello. you should be able to feel your way <laughs> from any exit. Because, no, because what gets you isn't necessarily the crash, it's the explosion after the crash. So there's a window of, like, 90 seconds to get off the aeroplane before the aviation gas combusts. So if you're five rows or less from any of the exits, your chances of surviving a crash instantly are, like, trebled. As you were. Go on. Go <laughs> That's all we've got time for. <laughs> uh, the... I've not known about this uh, dark obsession of yours. I don't think it's dark. I think it's like no, it's not. It's not that you shouldn't be obsessed by it. It's the giddiness of the retelling. <laughs> of, you, you know when sometimes yeah, giddiness yeah, yeah. and fatality don't <laughs> yeah, always go hand yeah, in hand. No, that's and fair I enough. think that it was like yeah. I, we, we did a monkey cage recently, and, uh, and, and one of our guests, she went, "I'll tell you what, though, Ebola's cool." <laughs> and then I went, "I went, I know what you mean. What you're saying is you're really fascinated by it. You're not actually saying it's brilliant that people die of Ebola." She went, "No, no, I, that is kind of yeah, what I meant." I said, "But I understand you as a scientist just going, it's an incredible thing, yeah. but we have to be careful on Radio Four Tea Time. Sure, to not then have kids." going, Dad, can I have Ebola? And, you know, there's a lot of... This scientist said it's cool. I, what, what I love about air crash investigation is that I think it's like the anatomy of error. Like, I love the way they tease it all apart and usually there's like a triumvirate of things that have gone wrong. You know, there's like the storm that's come in, they've changed which, land, which, which airfield they're going to be... You know, like uh, the, the, the one, uh, the Tenerife one, mm. where the two 747s both crashed, <laughs> yeah, fully laden. It's like the worst in history. But that's not... I know. But that was because they had switched all, all this traffic to this airport that couldn't handle the traffic. They, they call it the Swiss cheese model. I don't know if you've heard of this. This guy called... Uh, he's called James Reason. He wrote uh, a really important book called Human Error. But it's as though you've got these slices of Swiss cheese, all these holes in where mistakes are happening. You can't get rid of them. Yeah. But it's when those holes line up, that's when you get the real disasters. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really... I, I think it's a brilliant... Uh, Whenever I think about errors and decision making, I get so much out of it. Well, so if you would like to get the recipe cards for the show, it is uh, cheese, fennel, and laxatives. Um, the uh, a very interesting thing. Um, we were, I was going to ask you loads of things about the books that inspired you, and we, I wanted to talk about the Phantom Toll Booth, which I think was the first mathematics kids' book that I remember. But we've run out of time. So what I will say is, uh, "Hello World: How to Be Human in the Age of the Machine" is out at the very beginning of September. Yeah, this, this September. So it may well be a week after this goes out, or it may well actually be pretty much on the day. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Hannah Fry, thank you very much, Sarah Kendall. You've been a help. But there have been times that I've seen already seen some of the complaints that are going to be coming in on this one. 
I was already, I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah. I was genuinely thinking, oh, I'll just cut that out. No, 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 no. No, there's no, no going back. No, you're, uh, you know, obsessed with plane crashes and I'm obsessed with uh, moments of the uh, collapse of dignity during podcasts. <laughs> so um, between the two, uh, we've found a good show here. Good one. We? Unreal. Yeah. Sorry. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, and you can pre-order Hannah's book, Hello World, from all the usual sites now. And don't forget Robin's book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out in October. You can pre-order that as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back again next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 